Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Welcome back. Happy 2020. I know it's February, but I'm still wishing everyone a happy 2020. Thanks for listening to another season of Burnout, a podcast featuring short conversations about creative sustainability with working artists from Toronto and beyond. I'm your host, Anupa Mystery. Some still don't know what to do. This week, I'm speaking with Rosina Kazi, a.k.a. Rose, of the electronic duo LAL. She's one of my OGs. And I use that phrase in reference to someone who's an elder, someone who helped pave the way. When I was a young teen, rapidly downloading music on a dial-up connection, I was also in pursuit of brown musicians who were making what I thought would be dope shit that was in line with the hip-hop and electronic music that I grew up loving. And... God, I wish I could remember when, but that's when I discovered Lal, which is Rose and her partner Nick. Over the years, I've been blessed to get to know Rose and Nick, and I've learned a lot about just how much work it takes to sustain a sense of radical possibility around who you are and what you put out in the world. Lal's been around for 20 years now, and Rose also shares her hopes for what Lal might accomplish in the future. What did you, what did you think Lal was going to be when you first formed I think at that time, because I was pretty insecure, like music was also a way to get attention in some way. So I really wanted to be, because I was also like a big pop head too. I wanted to be massive, right? But it was was like delusional. (laughs) I look back and I'm like fully delusional. (laughs) Fully delusional. Couldn't sing that well. (laughs) Like there was a vibe, but I never really wanted those things. You have to really want to be a star. Yes. You, you wanted to make music. I want to make music. There's a difference. There's a difference. If you're doing music because you want to be famous, you want to catch a check, that's up to you. Then you're going to roll a different way than if you're making music to heal. So my name is Rosina Kazi. I am a musician, but I also help run an underground alternative community art space called Unit 2. I mean, as artists in the city, any city, as it gets more expensive to survive, you end up having to do a bunch of things. So I do anything from curation to like speaking engagements. And you're in a group. Oh, Lal. Oh, sorry. I'm in a band called Lal. <laughs> yes. With now one other member. Only? With Nicholas. Yeah. Okay. We started as a duo. Oh. Yeah. And then we moved into like three or four piece. In Canada, I think we felt we had to have a band with musicians. Right. Which is a great experience. But at the heart of it, we're electronic musicians. We started in 98. So before LOL, I'm curious about, I don't think we've talked about this, about like Baby Rose. Baby Rose. Like what was. Hot mess. (laughs) Baby Rose was a hot mess. I'm from Brampton. I was born and raised in Brampton. Yeah. Um, what school did you go to? I went to North Park. Oh, right. We I didn't we, know this because I went to North Park <laughs> too. So I was at, I was born and raised in Brampton. Um, at that time, I mean, 
it was hella white, but there was a lot of like Caribbean, Punjabi community. Mm-hmm. This school that I went to was pretty mixed. Um, and it was very classic, like the, the, you know, the white kids, the preppy kids were on the hill, you know, all the like the brown and black kids were in the pit. Um, I was a baller. So I think uh, that saved me. I didn't know who I was mm-hmm. and I tried to please everybody. So I was like a part of everything and feeling like, you know, not always fitting in because I was good at sports. I I got um, I was treated very differently. Mm-hmm. You know, if I didn't play sports, and I wasn't good at it. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the fuck I'd be doing <laughs> or how I would be because it brought me it taught me so much about teamwork and community and how to how to like put on a front like just you just go out on the floor and you play Mm -hmm. you know and so I apply that to like my life now a lot of my good friends were all team sports a lot Mm -hmm. of us are ballers whether it's from like blood reserve in the middle of Canada to like Scarborough like we all play ball all of us know how to work with people really well Mm -hmm. because when you play ball or you play a team sport you might not know or like the people you're playing with but you got to represent on the court and so I kind of have brought that forth in all of my work I think um, so that was like early Jan Jackson. I was a huge, I was a freak fan of like <laughs> all kinds of like pop music. Um, she was like the first reflection, I think, for me of a woman of color who was bigger, who could dance, who was political. So I just like immediately just became a freak fan. You're a safe person to explore this idea <laughs> with. I felt comforted growing up around a lot of brown and black kids. Mm-hmm. Like, this was, like, the late 90s, early 2000s, mm-hmm. you know? Music was so good then. Yeah. <laughs> Hip-hop was so good then. R&B yeah. was so good. I mean, it still is. It's never not been. But, you but know, Foxy Brown, Lil' yeah, Kim, like, yeah. Trina, like, yeah. Missy. Idolizing them wasn't, like, because I saw myself in them necessarily. Mm-hmm. I took a lot of comfort in, in, in black celebrities and for me that kind of satisfied that urge for representation that a lot Mm -hmm. of young people today want in what seems like really hyper specific ways Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then I also see the flip side of it right which is like when people talk about the way South Asian kids kind of co-opt black culture Mm -hmm. I'm sure I probably had a phase where I was a little bit literal with it yeah I mean growing up in the like you know late 80s and early 90s like I was introduced to 88.1, so CKLN from when I was in grade six. That changed my whole life, house and hip hop and anything on that radio station. And the West Indian influence was really massive in Brampton as well. Yeah. Same with the Punjabi influence, but they were very oh, yeah, like the anti-black racism back then was very, it, it was very in your face, but subtle. You know what I mean? Like you wouldn't see the mix of like black folks going to a Punjabi dance at two in the afternoon because South Asian kids couldn't go. They get in trouble. They'd have day parties. I remember like one of my best friends is Jamaican and I think we did take her to like a couple of, we used to call them brown jams at the time, but they weren't, they weren't (laughs) day parties from what I remember. Yeah. These were, this was at the very beginning when like kids couldn't go out. My crew was very mixed, but I had a, a lot of West Indian friends and we would go to like Trini friends and we'd go to Fets like in Scarborough completely mixed because of the culture of Trinidad or the West Indies you know mm-hmm. um, but I also grew up heavily in the Bangladeshi community my parents and the folks that had come in the 60s and 70s were really about maintaining culture mm-hmm. not about politics not about religion um, and they started an association so half my time was spent up until I was probably like 12 like 
dancing or singing Bengali music and being dragged to Bengal. Like I've played in every high school in the city because, oh, of, well, yeah. because of, that's where they would show yes. have their shows, you know? Yeah. But then the other half, you're like in this Western context. How do we um, fit in? How do we mm-hmm. survive, you know? And so I think turning to black culture for me was partially because who I was around. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also, the stuff that people were talking about, the essence of it was a call for community, yeah. you know? And I think that's what also called me to being very much influenced by black um, music. But it wasn't devoid of not being around black people. So I think that's also part of the issue is that it's become this pop form. Right. And so all these people who are non-black are, they're not part of any black community. Right. And I think that's where it gets very interesting to me. I have good news. Burnout is going bi-weekly. So if you haven't subscribed to the show already, please do so via your favorite podcasting platform. And while you're there, don't forget to leave a review or a rating. It really helps people find the show. I was determined to go to be downtown. I was like, I got to get out of here. And so I asked for a transfer from the HMV Brampton to the downtown. And I, and I was lucky. I got it. And I got it in the basement. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. And so it was in the basement. For folks who don't know, it was like the, it's basically was like the black music floor. This HMV was at Young and Dundas. Yeah. It's this not, I think there's a marijuana store now or oh, something. Okay. Um. And like, and then from that, because of the store, we had access to like techno house, play the records up the street. Like mm-hmm. we just were able to tap into like every scene. And and then I met, so I met Nick there as well. And you know, you know, Tyrone, uh, his DJ crew was like spinning everywhere. Like I was volunteering for everybody. And then I was buying independent music. I worked at Tommy Boy for a second. What? Yeah. So then I got introduced to what was happening in the States with Tommy Boy. They were quite big. They were mm-hmm. super big. Um, and it was all like white men at the top, black and Latino or like, you know, folks at the bottom. Women were all secretaries or assistants. Like it was very weird to step into that and be very sensitive to that. Mm-hmm. Half a year later, they let me go, which was fantastic because then I was like, fuck this, I'm doing music. Mm-hmm. And Nick and I actually had been dating at that time. And then I that's when we kind of started to work on music. and. Was there always a kind of spirit of consciousness to your music early on? Yeah. Um, I think because of my Bengali roots, like Bengalis, at least my family, were hella political or engaged in philosophy, politics, to also art. I don't know. There's just something about me that just gives, and the people that I roll with, that we actually deeply care about issues and especially if they're impacting our communities Mm -hmm. and that was always there so our first album corners um what year was that that was like 2000 i think okay we're actually gonna do uh wavelength have asked us to re because it'll be our it's a 20th year of corners so we're gonna redo it and present it in february yeah which is kind of cool that's so cool and corners was very much about observing what was happening around us 
you know, and we lived at like the corner of like Jarvis and Gerard, I think, or somewhere in that hood. What was happening? Um, I mean, it hasn't really changed that much, but like, yeah, a lot of sex work, like, you know, a lot of poverty um, mixed in also with like, you know, people who are like partying or money. Yeah. Um, how was Corners received? Do you remember? It did really well. We were really influenced by what was happening in the UK and New York. Yeah. And we got a really good response because all the stuff that you're seeing now, people wearing, you know, the traditional outfits, using their language, using cultural rhythms. We did this in the 90s. Right. In Toronto. You did it in the 90s in Toronto. And it was part of, as you said, this thing that was happening in the UK. Um, like Asian underground was popping, yes. like yeah. Massive Attack, Tricky. Yeah. All that stuff was popping. Everything was you know, word of mouth or like a flyer campus radio. And because we were tapped in, because I also worked in the industry, it gave me a lot of tools, gave us a lot of tools on an independent level. Like I finally feel like the music industry is ready for us mm. because so many of us have been doing this for years, but the industry was still stuck. I was lucky because Nick, he was always sort of quiet, very introspective. And always pulled me in to be like, don't do that. Like, in terms of if I was trying to, you know, rap or something. Oh, my God. <laughs> He'd be like, nope. I'm like, okay. Um, and and now that we're in 25 years together, I think the reason why we've survived for so long is because we think outside the box, A. Eh? We make good work, but also because we don't have a lot of ambition. <laughs> we're not that ambitious. We're like... We just want to do good work and be around good people and hopefully get paid to do that. Yeah. And that's what I mean. Like I was definitely in that world of being a workaholic, you know, um, doing everything for the band. Um, we, we went, we opened unit two because we, I basically burnt out. When did you open unit two? Like 12 years ago. Oh, okay. So like, so 12 years ago, even though we were putting out music, we start to, we, we've always divided our time between like supporting community and making music, but then we really um, focused on building Unit 2. My mother passed in 2010, and when she passed, like I realized that I had spent so much time trying to make it into this fucking scene that I didn't spend enough time with her. And that hit me like a ton of bricks. And so I made a very conscious decision to really focus on community and support emerging, but also just for myself. I was like, I need to be around positive shit. I can't do this industry shit anymore. Um, so we started running Unit 2, and now I'm at a point where I'm like, oh, I've, I went too far now. Like I've given a lot to community for 25 years. Now it's time to really focus on ourselves as musicians. So that's kind of what we're shifting into. At heart, Nick and I are music lovers. Like, we love music. It is what fuels us. So there's there was never a question of we're going to stop. There were definitely moments of, like, what the fuck are we doing? <laughs> and, but I think because we're not, again, capitalists or trying to make it in a capitalist sort of framework, and we're around really good people and community that yeah we didn't need to do that I started working at the women's bookstore at one point that changed my life and it also um brought me closer to sort of then doing more political work and then coming out like that really helped me understand who and what I was why 
Why the bookstore? Um, I think because they had known me as a musician. That's mm-hmm. how I got the job. Amazing. <laughs> like at that time, it was like all women of color. There were some trans folks. Um, very political, like hard stance on Palestine, like hard stance on all kinds of things. Um, had his I- major issues as well systemically, but at that time coming in, I didn't really catch that until probably later. Um, but I would just, I love, I'm curious, I love knowledge. Mm-hmm. So I just was in a place for seven years of just knowledge. So that shifted my life and then I came out and then Nick and I dealt with that and, and it was fine. And then we just kind of, we took a break from like the cis hip hop man scene, mm-hmm. went right into like queer trans community. Like, and we didn't, even though we were well respected as musicians, when I came out, my instinct wasn't just to tap in laterally into the queer and trans music scene. I was like, You're, we're starting again from the bottom. And now I think we're at a place where we're like, oh, now we're trying to bridge all of our worlds together. Mm-hmm. You know? So I wondered if you might be able to talk about some of the joys and rewards of of making music and and the music making in particular even though your work is connected to community building so much but making music that um, speaks to something not only progressive but like communal everybody will have a different idea of what political means to them yeah like for us because and i think we're gonna start to slowly be more open about this side of our work that we're not very open about it's very spiritual the work that we do um so like even on stage i will disconnect outside my body that's the part that keeps it going because there there were when you become too because i've been in every scene i've been in the activist community i still have close ties with the activist community i've been in the record the music community i've been in you know, queer and trans community, like the the intersections, like all kinds of intersections, literary community, theater community. And the the dynamic of um, climbing up a ladder or class or hierarchy, it's our ego. They all exist in all those scenes. They're very similar. Totally. Actually, you know, and I think when I really began to recognize that these scenes are very similar, or the humanity is very similar in this way. Like I went from being less angry and, and hitting people over the head with my opinion. I mean, I write in metaphor, so it's not always obvious, Yeah. but even more into metaphor and less, um, less about something that's happening to somebody over there right. and more what's happening to us as a community, you know? And then not getting caught up um, in the ego of political work or whatever work that we're doing. And and I've seen it from like, you know, activists, amazing activist groups, again, like artists, that same ego, that same um, Western societal, you know, colonial shit impacts so many of our bodies. If you are in the Toronto area, I will be doing the very first live episode of burnout at long winter it's on february 21st for more information visit torontolongwinter.com my 
parents, like sort of what we do at Unit 2, it's exactly the same thing that they did. Like they would have parties, everyone would hang out, men would play cards, whatever. Yeah. 12 o'clock at night, they'd all start jamming downstairs. Yeah. Till 4 o'clock in the morning, they'd invite different artists to come and play. So I'm just doing the same thing that my family did, but in a new way. Mm-hmm. Instead of taking down these big institutions or these being part of these big things, how do we create the small how do you present another choice? How do you present another choice? And this has been happening for thousands of years. There's yeah. always been, but that choice is never um, celebrated or nor is it talked about openly. But I'm seeing more people mm-hmm. running stuff out of their houses now, mm-hmm. like, you know, creating like alternative spaces that aren't necessarily like another rental space that they have. Like, right. So I think that's always existed, you know, um, but as economy gets tougher and people have a harder time um we we have to do that yeah and certain communities have always been doing that like i feel like immigrant racialized communities indigenous communities have always had this other thing happening you know always it's just i feel like it's like not just white folks it's just certain people don't get that mentality like you just build your own shit i'm really into dub and reggae music and so i thought a lot of what i was mimicking was Rasta culture and I was like fuck that's weird you gotta be super careful (laughs) like what's happening but then I was able to go to Bangladesh and connect with Bawo community and Bawo community they're um they're very similar to Rastas in some way um but they're spiritual Hindu Muslim either or combination uh communities who also use music and metaphor um to talk about political issues live very simply vegetarian communal not all but there's a lot of weed smoking it's part of the culture and when I met that community and tapped into that it it clicked I was like oh so my Sufi and Bawal heritage which is in my family comes from like that that's increasingly important in the place where people are either being squeezed out or um they don't have spaces like actual spaces to gather that aren't their home yeah is transient better than nothing, though? Like, is transient are transient spaces better than nothing? I mean, I think obviously, yes. The answer is it is time for more permanent spaces. But, but I think what worries me about permanent space is that because so many people fall into becoming nonprofits or unable in, in to establish having a permanent space. There's a lot of trade offs. Yeah, the nonprofit system does not seem to also work because you get basically you get caught up in just focusing on admin and maintaining the administrative side. We're not interested in having the state tell us what to do. Yes, we'll take your money and we'll use it for good, but we don't want you in our faces. So that's the trade-off. The two, when things get too big, like even Caravana is a good example. Yeah. There was a push for it to go a different way economically, you know? And that actually I think is what perhaps might have fucked up some of the organizing around Caravana. Mm. You know, the it went di- from being a community base. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, they should have been given a check regardless because they bring so much tourism into this city. Right. But that's an example for me of the systemic racism around culture. It's like, we're not allowed to get big unless it's according to their rules. And it's like, I'm like, well, fuck that. Let's keep it small, make our own rules. You better have something that's unique about what you're doing instead of just chasing after the American or the, you know, the chasing after another cultural experience. And this is where like even South Asians, it's like, or Asians, it's like, okay, we're mimicking black culture, 
And I get if you're influenced by, by, by black culture, but what is your own voice within that? Or how are you giving back to that community? You know, like, I think the reason why we stuck around and we resonated as law, because we're very deeply connected to this city and like all the cultures of this city. Yeah. You know, and so that's what I'm looking for. I'm like, where I want to see work that, whether it's pop or whether it's avant-garde, that speaks to the Toronto experience. Right. Like Sedani is a great example. Yeah. You know, um, I'm definitely seeing it much more. You know, even like uh, um, Pantayo. Oh, yeah. But there's still this insecurity. Yeah. That we have. That I'm like, fuck it. Like, why? And and I think a lot of that has to do with systemic racism and systemic homophobia and transphobia or gendered shit. There's still a class issue in this city, too. Mm-hmm. You know? Oh, yeah. And getting worse, I think. Yeah. How would you, just to kind of wrap, I mean, how would you advise or encourage or nudge younger artists towards finding a point of view? Um, I came out of a scene that was a, that was mentored and was about mentorship and, and, and mentorship isn't just about age. It's about experience, you know, as well. I think people do that in their own way, in their own scenes. We sort of mentor, but we don't call it mentorship. Um, But we're also being mentored by young people. Cause Mm. I'm like, I don't fucking know what Instagram is half the time. So I think it's trying to like write down, I'm doing this thing called turtle tank right now. They're basically mentoring a bunch of QT, BIPOC, and allied folks around their work and how to do it from a framework of healing and also um, old indigenous knowledge. Mm. They they explore things in a way, they compare them to natural cycles in, in oh, nature. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then they just get you to really write down what's happening in your life and why. And so I think it's really important for artists to clock that. Like I, wh- how you have her, not just make the music or the art, but like, Take the time to sit down to see where you're at in your practice, you know. Um, document your own d- seasons. D- document your own seasons, exactly. And then whether you want to be like Drake or whether you want to just be a, f- a folk music playing across this country at the folk music festivals, like I think it's important to document where you are. And I've never done that. I'm just beginning to do that because we never had business mentorship or mentorship around that kind of stuff, you know. Um, I'm also like, just pretend like you're playing basketball. Like, fuck it. Like, do do what the fuck you want. Like the world is falling apart. If we do, <laughs> I don't know how much time we have left. <laughs> Be careful and don't, you know, don't culturally appropriate in some like fucked up ways, but like, just, just do what you want. I think. Thanks as always for your attention, for more ideas and thoughts and musings about creative sustainability, please check out my newsletter. You can find it at anupa.substack.com. That's A-N-U-P-A dot Theme song for Burnout is by Lal. The song is called Dark Beings and original music provided by Jamal Padmore. You can find me at Burnout Pod on Instagram. And as a reminder, if you're on iTunes or any other podcasting platform that allows you to rate and review shows, please do so for Burnout. It helps people find the show. It makes me feel good about myself. It makes me feel good about talking into a microphone while staring at my fireplace. <laughs> the
This episode of Burnout is supported by Factor and Canada's private radio broadcasters. If you have a music-related project, visit factor.ca to learn more about their programs. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlingbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.